Welcome back, guys, to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. This is episode two. I'm one of the co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, who's a physical therapist in Boston. How's it going, Mike? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Can't complain. Saturday afternoon. It's uh, drinking time already. So Yes. I'm also joined by Dr. Derek Miles, who's a physical therapist out at Stanford Children's Hospital. Derek, how's it going? Um, it's more coffee time than beer time still on the West Coast, so you, you and Amato get a head start on me today. Yes, so if Amato and I are just slurring our speech and stumbling over our words, uh, we're not stroking out. We just have drank more than Derek at that point. Yeah, I'm already on to my uh, second Julius. So you, you went to Treehouse Brewery this morning, right? I did. I made the pilgrimage. Uh, Amato puts up a picture on Instagram that looked like enough beer to maybe make it through a week. It was like 60 cans. To be fair, that was three people worth of beer, so it wasn't all mine. (laughs) (laughs) Heard. (laughs) Well, this is episode two. Uh, We released episode one maybe two, three weeks ago. And in episode one, we kind of just got... Shot the shit, uh, had a good conversation about ourselves and our backgrounds and kind of who we are and what we hope to accomplish with this podcast. This is going to be episode two where we're talking about epistemic responsibility, which sounds like uh, some big words and an interesting discussion. Uh, we got three papers here today that we're going to kind of go through, although we may not discuss them directly because some of them are pretty dense. I do encourage people to go check them out. Uh, one is by Saraga. George Engel's Epistemiology of Clinical Practice. I actually really liked that one. The other one is going to be by Healy, which is Rethinking the Doctor-Patient Relationship Towards a human Hermeneutically. Saying that right, guys? Close enough for my southern accent. Yeah, we'll love slide. Well, all right. Hermeneutically, uh, somebody will correct me, Informed Epistemology of Medical Practice. That one was really good. I liked that one a lot. And then the last one, which was very dense, and when I was reading it, I wanted to cuss at a motto, which is by Corlett, Epistemic Responsibility. Uh, but also good, but much, much more philosophical, I felt like, comparatively to the other two. Um, so if you, if you get a chance, I highly recommend you go check those out. We'll also link those into the bio for this podcast, uh, wherever you listen to your podcast at. Before we dive into this, I just want to give a disclaimer, because a lot of times when we get into these discussions, uh, people receive the discussion as though we're taking a moral high ground, almost trying to white knight this type of discussion, and we are going to try our best um, to not do that today. We've all collectively agree we've made a lot of mistakes throughout this process of going into clinical practice and continue to try to challenge ourselves. And uh, I know Derek and I both have a saying of just trying to be less wrong each day. And we definitely take that to heart. So uh, hopefully that's not how this episode comes across as today. Um, we don't want to, to, to appear that way to everyone. We are here to collectively learn. And in doing so, uh, maybe we can better the field. With that said, I do think it's worth saying that um, if no one's going to police the profession, then there needs to be people in place that are quote-unquote, policing the profession. And so hopefully that's more of how this is received, is we are just trying to police ourselves and then help further the profession and move forward. What do you guys think? I like it. I mean, all of us have made mistakes, but really the gist of what we're trying to discuss with this is really the 
being able to justify why you do what you do and where, especially as an advanced level clinician, which most of us would claim to be, like where we can really stand on as far as firm ground to be able to say with confidence or with any degree of certainty that what we're offering to a patient as advice or an intervention actually has some established efficacy for working. Yeah, so I think that gets at uh, part of one of the words, you know, that's in the title of this episode today is epistemology. Derek, do you want to kind of define that for us? Uh, so epistemology is essentially the study of the theory of knowledge, especially like as it relates to methods, validity, and scope. It's essentially the study of how you justify what you believe, essentially. Um, and there is some, or how you... I guess, discern a, an opinion from something that actually has some factual substance to it with which to justify you doing or saying what you're going to do. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a perfect, you know, uh, definition for this, this discussion. Um, I think Mike was probably, Amado, you were a little more classically trained in philosophy. Is that correct? No, that is a like, disguise I put on that I've, okay. I, obviously I've, I've, uh, I've fooled you. <laughs> I thought I thought for some reason you had like undergrad philosophy for some reason. No, I don't know why I was. I just that. I just like to peruse the uh, Stanford, well, Stanford Encyclopedia. You have, you have pulled the wool over my eyes. Exactly. Well done. Look at that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am sure there are going to be some philosophy people that listen to this. You can definitely uh, give us some tips and supporters about these these topics. Um, I am self-taught when it comes to philosophy, so by all means, feel free to critique us. But I think for our benefit of the discussion today, that is a solid definition, just um, basically knowledge acquisition and then justifiable belief for that that knowledge that you have. And obviously, if anyone's listened to Derek and I talk in the past and Michael talk as well, that we tend to weight pretty heavily research evidence to support our belief system and clinical practice versus, you know, weighting experience uh, more so. Um, yeah. What do you think, Amano? Yeah, I think it gets into this interesting talk about, I think everyone has ways to justify their beliefs and it's whether or not you're being kind of cognizant of it in a way. And I think that's where epistemology comes into play is like you're, you're having like this meta approach of thinking about why you know something and then why you put that into action. So like, there's a lot of forms of knowledge, but I think what we get into with the clinical practices, kind of going back to what you're saying, uh, the, the justified beliefs, like what what do you believe is true and how you're adjusting by that? And that's directly impacting how you practice. And so that's like one of the main levels of why somebody does something in a, at least in a clinical way. You can apply it a little more broadly, but I think in this discussion, that'll probably suffice. So how are we defining, go ahead, Derek. I think this kind of gets at where we're going to go with this discussion because a lot of times as clinicians or just as humans, we're really good at generating some stories out of it. And to us, the stories always make sense. Um, I always think about the classic study that Dan Airely references where they essentially like laid out four brown socks and they asked people in a store to talk about which sock was better and then why. And people will go around and fill it. And some people are like, oh, the third sock feels softer. The, this one has a better shade of hue. And it turns out all four socks were exactly the same. But, yeah. uh, of course, you know, to the person trying to differentiate between them, they can see what they want to see out of it and assign whatever belief they want to. And 
you know, it, upon learning that all four socks were the same, some people just readily accepted it and you pulled the wool over my eyes. And some people were like, no, they're certainly different. So it's just which camp do we fall into in that analogy as clinicians when presented with new evidence? Yeah. And I think like we could easily turn this into an evidence-based medicine discussion. And uh, I know we've all publicly had those discussions already as far as like what Sackett wrote about for uh, EBM and kind of the three-legged approach and so on and so forth. But I think um, because we've had that discussion so many times that we're not really going to get into that today. We're more going to discuss what we mean by epistemic responsibility because um, we've now defined epistemology as far as knowledge acquisition and justifiable belief, but there is a level of responsibility there, especially at our level of clinical practice, where patients are coming in looking to us as quote unquote authority figures, right or wrong. We have this title and this um, licensure that allows us access to people that are seeking our help and our knowledge. So what, um, and we'll start with uh, Derek, you first, what do you think or how do you define epistemic responsibility? I mean, a lot of it is to the point of how we justify what we're doing, but I think it also has to be applied with a certain level of grayscale because you can't say much with certainty, especially by scientific principles, unless you're saying something doesn't work. Like we can say with the scientific method that things don't work quite readily. It's why, you know, we're not talking about like black bile and humors and Unfortunately, we're slowly working on pairing off muscle adhesions that science is good at showing off like things aren't there. And whereas I think epistemic responsibility, you have to account for the fact that there's just not a lot that we can say, like, absolutely, this will work. But your responsibility is to give the best possible advice to your patients or, you know, even more broadly, like your friends um, just because if you're just going off of, well, this is what I read on some blog or, you know, this is what my professor in school told me, then essentially you're playing like the telephone game with knowledge. And if you've ever played the telephone game, the message gets cloudy really fast. And before you know it, you're offering a weekend course on myofascial decompression release of the L5 lateral oblique sling. And it sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I, I think that, of course, sounds amazing. I mean, I would easily pay $2,000 to, to hear that. <laughs> so to, to the uh, early bird price of $1,200. Yes, yes. Sign up before July the 4th. And yeah, I think um, I 100% agree with what you're saying. When I was reading through, I want to say it was Corlett, uh, they were talking a lot about responsibility. And one of the ones that, one of the points that I really liked is this idea of um, like, having virtue in your pursuit of knowledge acquisition, meaning that you as a clinician actually went and looked things up and studied it and examined it. And you just didn't look to Facebook or Instagram or some continue ed course and you were bestowed with knowledge and you just adapted it as your own without questioning it. And that's kind of how I think of epistemic responsibility is like the onus is on me to make sure that the knowledge that I'm acquiring to apply to clinical practice actually has some basis to it. And I'm just not regurgitating information that I learned maybe from school, you know, uh, going to chiropractic school, I could easily look at everyone that comes to my office through this lens of quote unquote subluxation. And be like, all I need to do is like fix these bony misalignments that I'm telling myself that I'm seeing, even though they're not actually there. And then patients report getting better for all sorts of reasons, like just regression to the mean or natural history or placebo like effects. 
And that kind of feeds into my idea that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in, in uh, clinical practice without actually questioning what I was taught and what I think I know. And to me, that's kind of where responsibility comes in. Uh, Amato, what do you think? No, yeah, I think you touched upon that like aspect of it that I because I look at it at different levels. Uh, you brought it's, you brought up EBM, and I was like, it's funny because I think we are easy to like skip this part of the conversation. Not like you and me and uh, Derek, but you know, like learning how to be evidence based. You skip the premise of like what it actually means to gather knowledge. So you're just already assuming that you need to just read evidence and then just like devour as much evidence as possible and then not have a framework on how to situate that. So this conversation needs to happen before that even happens. And then it goes back to like, what does being responsible for that mean? And I think you just kind of touched upon it. Like it's always seeking out kind of things that will maybe disconfirm what you think about the world and um, always exploring um, just new evidence, new ways of looking at it, partaking in different discussions, surrounding yourself with people who also challenge you, which we kind of touched upon the first episode, but it's kind of like, it's an activity. It's not a like finalization. Like it always has to kind of, it's like this continuing process of you refining how you look at the world essentially is the way I see it. Well, I think you, you have to look at it from like, you know, we look back at what they were doing in medicine 50, 60 years ago, and we're like, man, that was archaic. They had no idea what they're doing. If you go back 200 years ago, it's kind of the same thing. You're like, man, they were, I can't believe people subjected themselves to letting physicians do that. And to think we have it all figured out now is just like, it's, it's hilarious in a tragic way. Because like, I know 80 years from now, they're going to look back at even what we're talking about right now and be like, man, they had so much that they had wrong. And I think being able to accept that as a clinician, it it keeps you humble. And I think you have to have some humility really to not get caught up in your own bullshit of thinking that we have this all figured out right now. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And it almost seems as though what we're advocating for it's critical thinking, right? Like how you view the world and more specifically for our context, how you view the patient in clinical practice, like the lens at which you view these things through and this willingness to sit in gray areas of uncertainty, even in your discussions with the patient where you're not speaking in absolutes and you're talking about the complexities of the situation, but still willing to visit those things that you think you know um, and with the, and, you know, that's why I mentioned the premise of being less wrong is this idea that I, at least for me, I would think we have a lot more evidence of the things that we don't know that are incorrect versus the things that we actually do know that we should be doing in clinical practice. And I think the interesting thing too, is like, you can almost take it at a, like a meta level of what is your actual epistemological framework, you know, cause you can get stuck. I think like if, if all you think of treatment is that you need to correct biomechanics, let's say, let, like let's make make it black and white and kind of straw man it in a way. But if if that's your epistemology and you just need to constantly update that, you're you're kind of pigeonholing yourself, and it's almost like you're finding this further and deeper truth that may not actually be that applicable on a broad scale. And I think we'll get into that with some of the with the Healy and the Angle paper, but it, it's interesting how it, you need like a starting point too. And that's a, that's a hard discussion and a hard like development that 
I think a lot of clinicians will struggle with in the beginning of their careers. Well, that's kind of the point of school, right? Is to like give us a frame in which to view the patient through. And um, I know we've all collectively discussed about healthcare models and, and that's probably even more so a belief system created in which to examine the patient through, right? Well, I think it's interesting you, you talk about the school side of it because especially when it comes to this, I think most of us are unaware of the heterogeneity and what gets taught in schools. And, you know, if you're only surrounded by alumni from your own program, there's a high probability you, you all have been taught the same frame. But truth be told, there's probably there's 220, I think, physical therapy schools in the United States now. So I would be willing to bet there's probably at least 185 frames <laughs> to get taught. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we look at like the big ones. And it's interesting, it worked because I have coworkers from Washington, St. Louis, St. Augustine, USC. I come from Florida. You know, you're talking about some of the uh, the pillars, to use the word, of schools of thought that have really emerged in PT over the last 20 years. And it's interesting to have discussions because if we're all coming at it with a different lens, we obviously all can't be right. Like somebody yeah. needs to change something somewhere. And if we just keep saying, well, because that's what I was taught in school, we're lazy, essentially, because this is an always an ever-evolving process. Well, you would say we're epistemic, uh, being epistemically irresponsible, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I would probably use the word lazy over irresponsible there. Just because, <laughs> well, but like irresponsible to me means that at some point you were knowledgeable about what it took to be responsible. You know, it, it's like, yeah. it, it's almost like the difference between a lie and bullshit. It's just like you have an utter disregard for your own doctoral degree to keep learning. And that's, to me, it's lazy and more than it's irresponsible. Yeah. I guess irresponsible what, you know, this discussion kind of parallels, uh, what, what is it, fraud versus bullshitting, whereas the bullshitter may not actually know that what they're saying is false and incorrect. They just actually believe in it enough without realizing it's bullshit, whereas the fraud knows what they're saying is bullshit, but it's for a profitable manner, right? Would you say that's a yeah. good parallel to what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, so I think it is, uh, going back to what the motto, motto was saying, is that it's almost a mindset, like it's a critical way, but that has to be taught to someone. Like I know coming out of chiropractic school, um, not till the end, it was very, it would have been much easier for me to buy into everything I was being told versus starting to think critically about the things and really questioning it. So I think maybe that epistemic responsibility begins with the school systems kind of no longer instilling and indoctrinating students the idea that we have all of this stuff figured out and it's very black and white. What do you guys think? I think that's a pipe dream. Um, if you really want to know, because some of it is, even if you look at different schools, you're going to see different strengths according to the professors and different subject matter. And trying to think we're going to have this like, students come out and they're able to have this amazing critical appraisal of literature across all scopes. There's just too much shit that needs taught to be a good clinician. And like, I think the thing I always go back to is there, there's a trope that medical students are taught that by the time they graduate, 50% of what they learned in school is going to be wrong. 
just because right. the evidence changes so much. And it bothers the hell out of me that PTs and chiros can come out of school, open up their own practice and think they've got it all figured out when the same student who went to medical school graduates and is taught that they literally know nothing about nothing in the field they've chose to specialize in. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know, man. I think some of the onus still lies on the school to teach people how to think critically, even beyond before it gets to uh, like the university level. I was having this discussion with one of my friends who teaches at a local school that I'm doing the powerlifting study with. And my thought is I put the responsibility on undergrad because it's the first time you're actually going into a school in which you're paying more money than just what your tax money is going to pay for. And so at that point, I definitely think that you should be taught how to think versus what to think and how to critically appraise things. Um, but, you know, whether that'll happen, I don't know. It's tough to say. Amato, what do you think? No, I, that's a good point because I think it, by the time you're in graduate school, I think like the skills need to be somewhat set and in play because then, then you're then you're specifying like your like niche, like what you want to dive deep into. And if you look at like a lot of what the um, pre-med programs look like or the pre-PT programs look like, and I can speak to this because I was in a accelerated program where I did my bachelor's athletic training. It is just, you know, you're, you're forced to take strictly like didactic science-based uh, classes. And so you're like indoctrinated into just learning, regurgitating, learning, regurgitating, and even in school, I saw my my knowledge get like updated very quickly from transitioning from an athletic training bachelor's degree to like the DPT program. There was even some like conflict in there, and it was it was wasn't so much like here's how to critically look at how, why that changed. It's more like, oh, that was your undergrad degree. This is the real stuff now. And right, I, we're actually going to dive into. Yeah, this. it wasn't like it wasn't like I had to learn why. I had to change my look on it. It was just like, all right, we're moving on to the next thing. Just forget that you learned that. And when I think back on that, I'm like, wow, like, <laughs> like that significance there, like totally went over my head. Yeah. I vividly remember learning exercise science and undergrad classes and then taking grad level and just being blown away by how little I actually knew on a topic I thought I had a good grasp on, but not realizing there were layers to the discussion. Um, one thing that kind of like popped in my head when, when Derek was talking as well is, especially about medical school, and I can't remember which article talks about this. Maybe you guys can refresh my memory, but it's looking at the patient as this kind of uh, disease state that we're trying to gain access to in order to kind of distill them down to this problem that we need to fix versus working with them as a human being. Uh, which kind of makes me think about relating that to the universities. Like, are they actually teaching that of how to just teach from a holistic or human standpoint? Yeah, I think that was the Saraga article. I, I, I mean, I think both the Healy and the Saraga article uh, touched on that. Well, um, you know, you look at it from, I, I got in trouble in school at one point because there was, I got in trouble at school at a lot of points for being honest, but <laughs> <laughs> that there was a lot of psychology classes offered and it was like abnormal psychology, social psychology. And, you know, I always found it funny that like there's an abnormal psychology class, but there is no just like normal psychology class. <laughs> it, it's, right. it's like we completely skip the step of saying like, 
well, this is the way that, you know, our standard means for everything. And even if you look at how we're taught musculoskeletal practice, it's like, we're not taught, like, this is how a shoulder works. They're like, here is 17 different versions of a slap lesion, even though, you know, it's but plenty of people present right. with it and it, we're just taught from an abnormal perspective. And if you're completely just inundated with all of this stuff is abnormal, I, I think you completely forget to realize that there is a huge variance in what is normal in humanity. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and then you're taught like, everything is centered around not only those abnormalities, but how to test for them. So, you know, 50 different orthopedic tests for the shoulder that we don't even question. At least I didn't when I was going through school. I didn't once question, like, what's the sensitivity and specificity of this test? I just thought, oh, memorize these tests, do it perfectly and get an A, pass boards and move on. Um, so it's interesting, like, learning to question these things that were being taught and then learning how to frame them differently once you're actually in clinical practice. Derek, you've got on, uh, so we always do an outline for these podcasts and you have something listed here as a ship example. So I'm curious, what is this ship example? So the ship example is a good representation of epistemic responsibility. Um, it essentially, it comes from James Campbell and it goes as such. Um, there is an individual who owns a shipping company and he is selling passage on a transatlantic voyage but he knows that the ship that people are going to be traveling on is an absolute garbage junk and he says in his mind well you know they they're going to pay me for this we'll see if they get across the ship sinks he collects his insurance money all of us would look at that individual and be like that dude is a raging prick who needs very bad things done to him <laughs> right <laughs> well so if we take the same story Voyage across the transatlantic, rickety ship, people pay for it. But this time the ship actually makes it to Europe. Well, as far as the guy knows, he made his money. Now, is he still a prick? He, he, he knew that the ship was rickety the whole time and he still let people go on it. Well, you know, you look at these scenarios and, you know, if we change out a few things, we can play the same game for treatments. Well, we know this treatment doesn't really have any evidence for it. And what's funny is the, the story really holds well without changing that much. You know, if the treatment doesn't have any evidence for it, well, you know, it, it may help us bridge the transatlantic a little faster or bridge the gap a little faster. Mm -hmm. um, and if it doesn't work, insurance still pays for it. And the guy knows that it doesn't really work. It just may get the person to the other side faster. Well, is that person a prick? Or, you know, in the same regard, you do this treatment that doesn't really have any evidence to it, and you're well aware of that, or it may have contrary evidence to it, and the person doesn't get any better. Well, in that instance, you still get paid by insurance, or they do get better, sorry. Even if they do get better, you know, you get paid by insurance. The person writes you a five-star review on your Facebook and Instagram page, and you think it's the greatest thing that you've ever done because you learned it at a weekend course last week. But, you know, without the evidence really being there to justify you doing what you're doing, it's the same thing. You're putting your patients on rickety ships or rickety bridges, okay. if you will. Hoping that they don't sink or fall into the water. Well, you know, you look at all this stuff, and I think it's hilarious in the tragic sense, once again, that if you talk to most of these clinicians, they're like, I have a 90% success rate or my treatment works 100% of the time. Like, I'm always like, well, publish that data, boo-boo. Like, I, I need to see this stuff. And because, like, 
I think we forget that a lot of people, if it doesn't work, they just like leave. And it was pretty eye-opening doing some of the low back studies or helping out with some of the low back studies in Florida. Cause you know, you would get stuff come back and you'd see your success rates like 65%. And you're like, well, that's an eye-opener. And you know, when we accept that like a large portion of people get better on their own, you know, you're, you're playing with slivers and numbers and how you're moving the dial. But I also would think to that same regard that a lot of clinics that put people on rickety shifts don't, and I'm sure I'll get a comment somewhere on this, but I, I think they don't see the complex cases quite as much because there are just things that come into hospital systems that like they're the people just from a humanistic standpoint, aren't going to be able to afford cash-based care. They're going to have 17 yeah. transportation issues. And, and I, I think the complexity there isn't necessarily what's going on at the tissue structure. It really is like the lived individual. And, you know, if you're two hours away from me and, I'm the only practitioner you can get to because of your medical insurance, then like I got to figure something out and it's not going to be ideal the whole time, but we need to make sure that like, I can't look at the person and be like, well, the evidence says you need to do two times a week for eight weeks or whatever crap okay. like that. It's like, well, no, it yeah, no dude. Like I get it. This sucks. Let's sit down and figure out like what we can do to give you the best plan moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, I like that example. I don't, uh, I mean, I've learned a lot of things. I opened my business right out of school and I learned a lot of things trial by fire, uh, which tends to be how I do things best in life, apparently. Um, but I opened up as a cash base only and I quickly realized from my demographics, like this isn't smart, like I'm not going to be able to help anyone. And I switched over to an insurance base. And it's been a lot better for me, but I realize every day um, it's easy to think about I'm just treating a shoulder or I'm just treating a knee. And I try to fight against that anyways by treating the person, but it's even easier to forget, like, we're not only doing that, but we're dealing with social economic status. We're dealing with, you know, how do we fit this into their daily lives already? Because most people are seeing us for pain type related stuff oftentimes, which is already a hindrance to them and it's a disruption in their life. But I really like what you're talking about, like meeting the person where they're at and figuring out how do we make this work so I can actually help you as a human being accomplish and get back to doing the things you want to do in life while taking into account all these other factors, which for me, like talking about epistemic responsibility, I would have a hard time at that point. If it all comes down to stuff like that, like uh, financial issues, then I'm figuring out what is it exactly I, I must do to influence the prognosis on this case versus a bunch of other silly BS that I'm going to do because it makes me money. You know what I mean? I mean, can you imagine looking at somebody and like to the, to the example I gave, who's an hour and a half away and, you know, work 60 hours a week and being like, well, you know, I need you to come in for this Graston two times a week for eight weeks. And we're going to, you're going to have to pay for it out of pocket because this is yeah, what I think like works. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, dude, <laughs> like the, it, it, it just makes no sense. It, and it's not being able to think through really why you're doing what you're doing. And while like a lot of the heuristic really is similar between cases, it's like, I talk with patients all the time that it's not really where we're going. It's where do we start? And I need to figure out where we need to start together to start on this path to getting you better. And I'm not going to do that with things that don't hold. I'm, I'm not going to put my patient on rickety ships. Yeah. 
it, it, I think it, it is, uh, I think this really is where epistemic responsibility and ethics comes into play. And this is why I gave the disclaimer at the beginning of the show is because I don't want people to take the wrong message from us. But I think that we really, we need to strongly question the things that we're doing in clinical practice to ensure that what we actually are doing is medically necessary to positively influence prognosis. And, and not that, oh, I can do this other thing. Is it actually necessary to change clinical outcomes of that case? And I think if you can't answer yes to that question and you don't have supportive evidence for an intervention to be completing it, then we need to really look at epistemic responsibility and are you adequately assessing things from an evidential standpoint in order to live up to your expectation as a clinician and as well as a patient's expectation of you. I don't know. I, I, it's tough for me to not get fired up about seeing people getting the treatment plans that you're describing, especially in, in uh, and I hate titles, but especially in the chiropractic field, just you know, two times a week or three times a week for the next six months and then one time a week for the next six months and then one time a month forever until you die. And there's no evidential support for that type of approach to clinical practice at all. It's interesting because like, uh, I wonder if that's why we get into so much uh, heterogeneity and so much like discussions and debates about things because of where everyone's starting is different. And that if we just label it as like evidence-based practice, everyone can, everyone brings their evidence to the fight and, right. and everyone has evidence. And so then, then we're at a, like a, like a landlock because it's like, well, I have this, uh, I have that. And we're all coming from different like epistemic views on like what clinical practice like actually is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think part of that is, is people don't know how to assess the quality of evidence that they're bringing to the table. Yep. And the idea is, well, I just have to have evidence. So, you know, fuck you. I've got evidence. You got evidence. And what's the common saying? I can find evidence to support anything. That's the usual outs you see on social media. Exactly. Anyways. Yeah. Well, here we're going to get back to my epistemic laziness. Like, that, <laughs> like, that statement alone, like, it, it just, to me, normally when I hear that in a debate or argument or discussion or whatever it is, it's like, okay, well then show it to me. Like, you say that, prove it. Like, show me your cards. And, you know, how many times have we thought something was certain and then, like, started digging into the evidence and realized that, like, the certainty with which we should talk about this is not nearly what we thought it was. And so someone just, yeah, I feel like on like a bi-weekly basis and we're like, well, <laughs> there went that idea onto the next one. But like people who are like, Oh, you can find evidence to support anything. Okay. Well show me like prove it. Like you're a big boy doctor. Let's, let's see you pull your cards out. And yeah. like, it, it's just like, it's sheer laziness. And I think a lot of times I get blasted for being like, oh, you think you know so much. I'm like, no, I don't know shit. And I want you to think you don't yeah. know shit too. Like, like <laughs> right. come, come down into the abyss with me. Let's try and figure this out. Like, it's like, I, every time I think I find something, I'm like, man, we finally found some firm ground to stand on. It's like, well, there's that meta-analysis. Time to, time to try and get a little well, bit more complex with this. I know even for me, like coming into clinical practice, and I had already kind of torn away all of the things that I thought I knew from school and not only my uh, doctorate, but my master's as well with exercise science. And I was like, well, I'll combine the clinical environment with a gym environment and exercise is a way to do things. 
And then as I dived into exercise more and more over the years, I was like, fuck, we don't actually know a whole lot about exercise, even though we all tell exercise, quote unquote, works. It works for the individual based off of their individual goals and what they're trying to accomplish in life. And we don't even need to call it exercise. We can just call it movement or activity or whatever. It's you lose the ability when you really start diving down. This is why we call it rabbit holes or an abyss that you realize we don't know a whole lot. And there's a lot more of information of the things that we're like, we were incorrect about this. But that's kind of the point of science is consistently looking at things over and over and over again, trying to find new perspective and new understanding and hopes of acquiring this truth that we'll most likely never touch. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is, trying to even think about how to say this, like, we are very fallible in our ways of thinking about things. Like, uh, whenever we, this conversation always comes up, like, the first paper I always go back to is the Hoffman one from 2017 on clinicians overestimating benefit and underestimating yeah. harm. And, like, when you see that, you're like, well, I'm a clinician. Odds are I do the same thing. And, you know, you start looking at it in, like, Right now, for the Barbara Medicine Review, I'm doing the, an article that's meta-analysis on the use of heavy centrics for tendinopathy. And, you know, if you go to most clinicians that would consider themselves evidence-based and you do word association with the word tendinopathy, odds are you're going to get either eccentric or heavy slow resistance thrown back at you. But yeah. really, when you start looking at the papers, like on the heavy slow stuff, there's like four papers. So, yeah. so we're like hanging our hat on four papers to say with certainty to patients that this is going to work. And it, it's kind of laughable when you get down to like, but, but even to the research side of things, I think part of the reason we don't have these basic papers is because it's more flashy to do like dry needling plus a stem or plus IA stem plus power dots plus exercise plus manual therapy versus sprinkling glitter on someone a randomized controlled trial it's like no let, let's do the boring shit first figure out if that works and then we can start talking about the flashy things well do you think also that this gets to like how you're looking at the way we're studying it and it's like here's tendinopathy this specific tissue diagnosis and then when you, we go back to this kind of like person-centered care like is a hammer for a nail always going to be like the solution for that person. And then like, it's, it's going to work on the broad concept. Like if, if loading aggravates them, you're going to have to figure out some kind of like a loading plan for them. And heavy, slow resistance happens to be a loading plan. But when you're looking at it on that kind of like clinical level, everything's not going to be a nail. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, no, I, yeah. I think that's a perfect example because, you know, going back to what we're talking about, about like looking at people as humans, like it's, well, of course, like, congratulations, we know how to physiologically change a tendon, like, cool. But how is that affecting that person's ability to go run or do whatever? And just because like we did change that tendon, were they able to get back to doing what they wanted to do? It's, they're not their tendon, they're John or Mary or Sue or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like it, it's seeing that it's a person with goals and not a tendon with pathology. Yeah, I think that's a huge point that can't be understated is um, seeing them as a human being and 
then collaboratively working together with that human to move them towards their goals versus how at least I think most of us were trained or all of us were trained with this is a tendon issue and I just need to fix that or this is a subacromial you know impingement issue or this is a, a femoral acetabular impingement issue or this is whatever and I need to fix that and then I fix the patient and we never actually consider that person's thoughts and beliefs and their experiences and everything that goes into them yeah it, it, um, it, and never mind all the other Go ahead. No, sorry. It's like how you're reading the paper. It's like you, you read the heavy slow resistance paper and then it gives you like a little more insight into like, oh, like loading matters. But this is not yeah. this, this is not like the solution is the way I kind of like see that. Well, I think it's not yeah. like cause and contributes. It's like, well, this can cause this. Well, it can contribute to it. <laughs> and it's just instead of thinking about things in like 80% chunks, it's thinking about things in like 15% chunks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that covers the ship example pretty well. Um, next up, I'm going to let Amato explain. And this is looking at, so I'll, I'll read it off. How about that, Amato? And then you can kind of talk us through this. Does that sound yeah, good? Yeah, go for it. All right. So this is from Corlett's paper. It states, S is an epistemically responsible agent at TN to the extent that S, as an intentional and voluntary agent at TN, accepts, uh, and then parentheses, by higher order cognition, open-mindedly and critically that P. Do you want to explain that, Mark? Yeah. Isn't philosophy fun? Right. It's like math but words sometimes. Um, yeah, without, without getting too like crazy about that, essentially it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning where it, epistemic responsibility is like an activity and that what it kind of gets down to is that like at a specific point in time, like a person needs to be like intentional and voluntary, like accepting an open-minded and critical position on the beliefs that they employ. So if like you have a belief at a specific time, you should be actively seeking to like update that, maintain it, um, disprove it, whatever your um, method is, as long as it's like important in your like day to day. And like, how are you um, like demonstrating that power to other people? Cause like you can have a belief that like, I don't know, uh, French toast is better than like a bagel for breakfast, but that's not going to matter if you're wrong or right. But like, you know, if you believe that, you know, a trigger point exists that if you need to apply a certain amount of pressure to break it up, that is having a real effect on multiple people at multiple levels. That is like, it's like the Uncle Uncle Ben quote, uh, you know, with great power comes great responsibility that I feel like we can never get away from. But I was was teaching the low back course. We were recording it this week and I literally used that quote. Yeah. So yeah, you're actively like seeking information and, and being open-minded. That's a cool part of it too. It's not like you are trying to just always defend your position. You're actually maybe seeking to disprove it as well. And I think that's what, uh, what's his name gets at, uh, Corlett. But Mike, what if I go out and I create the French toast Facebook group <laughs> and we start a petition to get rid of bagels and we say French toast is the way to eat breakfast. It's the most nutritionally dense way. It's the best way to start the day. And you should pay me money so I can teach you how to eat my French toast. That kind of sounds a little weird, but eat the French toast. <laughs> I think that's called a restaurant, Mike. A... <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, is that not what's happening in clinical practice though, right? Yeah. You know, like, hey, come and, come and yeah. you know, try my technique. Let me teach you my technique. Let me convert you to my religious viewpoint of clinical practice and then bestow upon that knowledge on you for financial gain and then you go out and convert others. Yeah, it, I think it comes back to like the initial assumptions that we don't know we're making, right? And this is another term I see pop up sometimes in neighboring topics, uh, like a, sh- a shared ontology, which means that you're, we're all kind of acknowledging something that we think exists, but we don't like, we're not conscious of it or we're not like voluntarily thinking about it. And so I think a, a shared ontology in practice is that you need to identify the pathophysiology and then from abnormal yeah. and make it normal. And then you're pretty right. much like, not screwed from the onset, but you're going down like a dark path and it's going to be hard for you to kind of come back to the light. <laughs> it's, so we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but I, I think it bears re-mentioning that there was a, a study where they had individuals come in to solve a problem. And the problem was basically based on doing some tasks to turn on a light. And they bring people in, and the only thing they tell them is, if you turn on the light, you get a reward. Well, what they didn't tell the people is that there was like 20 different solutions to the problem. But invariably, the people would come in and find one solution that worked and then keep doing that solution over and over again without looking for another one. And I think that really bears an interesting parallel to clinical practice to where if you just go for your one solution, sometimes you forget there are multiple ways of getting there and being able to master or at least expose yourself to different ways is just as important as having your one way. Yeah. Wouldn't you say that that gets an epistemic responsibility too? If we know that almost anything, for example, works like is effective, then doesn't it become a question for the clinician to have sought out what is the most evidence-based way of being effective? Well, then, Michael, I'm going to play the most played-out phrase in the entire rehab profession to you right now. It depends. Um, it, part of this is, <laughs> like, you know, you see this, oh, God, he's, he played it depends. The, the battle is over now. Um, the, no. It, Boss has been. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but really, like, it, it gets back at, what Amato said a moment ago in terms of like defending your premise versus attacking your premise. And I think unless you're willing to like attack your own premise, you're probably only going to find one solution. And even, you know, to the analogy, like if you're sitting there putting up defenses the whole time, all you're doing likely is putting yourself in a point of stasis because you just like built a fort around your belief. Whereas if you're attacking your belief the whole time, all you're doing is trying to knock down that fort. Well, if you spend, you know, $150,000 on this belief system and then you spend $2,000 every year for this new belief system to expand upon the prior belief system, I feel like you are painting yourself into a corner, right? There's too much money that's been spent. And then if everything just tends to get better on its own, to be cliche, time tends to heal most wounds. Um, It's going to be a very hard battle to start attacking things, especially if you're profiting off of it, right? I mean, I think it really comes down to the person. I think if you got in this career to make money, 
probably should have done something else. I mean, <laughs> and it's the money is there. Yes, you can make money off of it, but really like that whole played out trope of like, we got into this to help people. Like if that's your yeah. ultimate goal, you should be looking for the best way to help people and not the way that someone told you to do it. Which leads back to epistemic responsibility, right? Defining what is best. Yeah. And there's like other ways you can look at it. Right. So like this kind of goes back to the, my evidence is best, but what if your evidence only shows like a short term effect and, but we haven't like studied cost. We haven't studied, um, you know, medical cost long-term. What if we haven't looked at like what their thoughts and beliefs are after the fact, like there's, there's a lot of things you can like study, not just what was the effect and the effect is pain yeah. decrease two out of 10 on the pain scale. And that's their win. But like there is a much broader perspective on the interventions I'm choosing have multiple layers of complexity to why I'm justifying them. It's not just because I think it is effective, like in this specific way, I think it fits my, you know, epistemology of like what I think clinical practice should look like in a fair, um, justified way that doesn't have the patient rely on me long-term, you know, I mean, you can come up with tons of reasons on like what your actual philosophy practice is, but it's kind of the way I see it as well. It's not like just about that specific piece of it. Yeah, I think it's funny. There's one individual I seem to cross paths with on the internet semi-regularly, and he teaches a method of treatment to which there is no research for. And every time I'm like, so where's that research? And his response is, well, research takes money. And I think it's hilarious because on his site's webpage, it says this method is used by, and then lists off like 10 professional teams. Like, are these guys paying you in cookies? Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm, you know, if you're, it's weird. If you're getting that clout, I'm sure at some point you have some money. And if I had some money and I was saying some stuff, I would like to think that I would want to know if the stuff I was saying actually had some backing to it, or if maybe, just maybe, I'm full of shit. <laughs> and that gets at, you know, being responsible and seeking out quote unquote truth and putting things under a critical lens. You know, I'm getting ready or have started conducting a study. I'm not making any money off of that. I'm not, I'm also not really spending money. It's costing me my time. But if there's something I want to look at, like I do with this study, because I want to see what is quote unquote truth on a topic that's very popular right now with training variables and fatigue variables, then I want to go look at that versus just trying to profit off of it. So I think it takes someone saying, I'm saying all this shit and I'm making a lot of money off of it. What's the responsible thing to do here? Should Should I put this idea under the lens and see, but to their, like, I don't know. Um, I'm a bit of a shark tank nerd and I watch a shit ton of those episodes and it would seem as though oftentimes, even outside of healthcare, the the desire is rushed to market, make a lot of money because that's ultimate success. I mean, maybe society has put them at a disadvantage from the, from the get go. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, just let's just think about this in terms of like popular culture right now. There is just recently a massive scandal in Silicon Valley with someone making false promises regarding healthcare, saying they had yeah. the solving thing to it. 
like this device is going to cure all of our healthcare diagnostic needs. There's going to be nothing like it. It's going to cost a tenth as much. It's going to, you know, basically be the holy grail of what we're looking for. And I'm pretty sure that individual is being prosecuted in Santa Clara County, about 20 miles from me currently, because when it came time to really put up or shut up, there was no evidence for her claims. And that seems to be the norm, though, isn't it? For that for that area, like uh, <laughs> it sounds like she did a little a little more above and beyond, so to speak, not in a good way. But it seems to be the norm out there, right? Well, I think in, this was one of the things that keeps coming up is in tech, it, it is like that constant beta mentality of like, well, the technology will catch up to our promises, which, you know, if that's whether you're going to be able to send a text message on the Caltrain cool, like whatever, you can wait to get out the tunnel. But if that's related to someone's health, like there's, yeah. there are consequences to that. And I think a lot of times we forget that even though like a lot of the things we're dealing with in the grand scheme of medicine are musculoskeletal problems and probably not seen as like dire emergencies, like us mismanaging those emergencies is like detrimental to the long-term health of a lot of our individuals. Yeah. I think a lot of qualitative analyses are demonstrating that now that are, that are coming out, like specifically, I think of low back pain with Darlow and Setchell about the negative effects we can actually have on people with mismanagement of cases. And I think you're exactly right when it comes to responsibility. Um, I talk to people all the time, especially uh, new clinicians and students is like, you are being placed, and this goes back to the motto with the Uncle Ben quote, you're being placed in a position of power and authority, whether you want it or not, the second the title of doctor is bestowed upon you and you have licensure to have access to people looking to you for knowledge, you are influencing their belief system and their behaviors. And I would not take that lightly uh, at all, which means you want to make sure that the shit you're saying in practice has the most amount of possible evidence that we have a current understanding about behind it. And that kind of gets towards the responsibility part is regularly checking in on the evidence and making sure has anything changed that I need to change my narratives and my approach to this topic. Yeah. And that's like, uh, I think it permeates through your whole like existence. Like maybe Derek can, Derek can speak to this probably a lot is, you know, like why do you read so many books, Derek? Oh, because I, every book I read shows me how little I know about a topic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, not, it's not like you're just reading about physical therapy right yeah and like it, it broadens your worldview and i think you know like uh something that was a really cool study that came out this year that really changed the way i kind of like looked at research and practice was Bronnie thompson's paper on like what it means to live well with chronic pain it was a very oh, i haven't read that yet. yeah the yeah. way it was designed is very interesting it's different than like your normal kind of rct like deductive reasoning and um you know, it, there were some cool findings in it, and a lot of it w was based on people deciding that they needed to kind of move on and get on with it and figure out coping skills and how to essentially reclaim their role in society. And something like that is, like, I think very powerful. And then it's like, well, then how do you learn how to help people find that in their lives? And I don't think it's going to come from just, like, you know, reading RCTs about um hip internal rotation, you know, being a risk factor for knee pain, you know, it's going to come from broadening your worldview and like reading fiction and, you know, like actually finding ways to connect. Yeah. 
yeah yeah that's yeah yeah, that and i think that's epistemic responsibility you know i think you're being a responsible person and like you're in a person centered model of care like you're dealing with people day to day do you think that's why some of these interventions that are less than ideal that don't have a lot of evidence behind them is because the delivery is behind someone to their credit that's being charismatic and it comes off at minimal as caring and willing to listen and connect versus someone walking into a seven minute visit and being, you know, written off a prescription or an injection or something. Yeah. it kind of gets, and this is like, I don't know if I haven't taken Greg Lehman's course, but I think he talks about like, what's the active ingredient ingredient across different interventions that end up kind of having similar effects. And if that ends up being like a very good chunk of the active ingredient ingredient then you can kind of cut away you can trim the fat right you can get rid of the excess that's not needed essentially derek you've taken his course haven't you yeah it it was it was really good and i think he has a lot of like i I think sometimes even going back to what we talked about last podcast about trying to be aware of the communication side of things i think he does a phenomenal job of bringing in like real world case examples of what matters and what doesn't matter. And, you know, he has a picture of some or a video of someone shooting a jumper with crazy knee valgus. And like, you're like, well, are you going to fix that? Are you going to tell this dude making 35 mil a year that his jumper is causing his, or is going to destroy his knees down the road? And I have no doubt there are some clinicians that would say that, but yeah, like, I think, my take recently has been like, I follow a lot of um, lifters with the cerebral palsy and some other like neurological disorders, just because one, I think it's awesome what they can accomplish. But two, like there was a video a little while back of a teenager pulling like two times body weight with CT and it had like a hundred thousand shares. Everyone's like, this is the greatest thing ever. And like, it looked kind of like a Jefferson deadlift watching him pick it up off the ground yeah. or, or a Jefferson curl watching him pick it up off the ground. But like, if I posted that same technique of me, I'm going to get all these like, Oh, you're going to blow out your disc. You're going to do X, Y, Z. And like, well, why does it matter if I post the video and he does like, why does he get celebrated? Like we're both humans. Like we're like, yeah. we're both the same meat bags. Like, like <laughs> it's, yeah. And like, uh, and I play that game sometimes even like with, in my mind with some like patients who come in I'm like, well, if this person had a neurological deficit, would I be proud of that lift? Or would I, you know, tell them one, I'm never going to tell anybody they're going to hurt themselves. But like, like, yeah, we have things to work on, but Jesus, don't we all have things to work on? Like, I mean, odds are if that lift is technically perfect and you're powerlifting, the weight wasn't heavy enough. Like it's like, there's going to be some breakdowns as you start challenging yourself and it kind of gets into that error side of things. Like what's that? (laughs) No, I think CP is a good, CP is a good example because like, aren't, weren't, wasn't there a time when they were trying to correct um, the Achilles shortening and then they were discovering that it was like worsening their gait. Mm -hmm. They're still doing that actually. Yeah, and so yeah. they're they're I think that's still a common. Yeah, and so it's like mind blowing because like they're looking at this like adaptation and classifying it as abnormal, and then correct 
quote unquote correcting it and it's it's like again you're like focusing on the achilles of being like an issue for someone who has cerebral palsy but rather than a human yeah that's yeah. a whole life-changing I, thing i feel like a lot of it's just wanting control you know like you approach the clinical practice situation and trying to gain control over a situation yeah uh, um, I think that's kind that's... of a nefarious take because I don't think a lot of people are actually looking for control. I think it's more like they want certainty. But wouldn't certainty provide control? I think if you're saying you're trying to control a situation, like you're trying to take power over it, whereas like you can have mutual control but be certain of your decision. Like it, I don't know that many clinicians give mutual control. Well, I like I feel like it's usually either, a but I, I think going into a, uh, conversation like I'm going to control this like that that just sounds nefarious and I don't think many clinicians are remotely have that kind of disposition I think you know most of them have intention to help I don't know that it would be something that's um, how do we say like aware of that they're like yeah I'm going to control this I think it's just a desire to gain control over a situation well, I think it's whether they're cognitively aware is I think it's a learning too so I think like the quick thing to pump the brakes on is like like my example of lengthening, lengthening the Achilles that it's not malicious it's not everything has right I would hope everything has good intent but it's this alluring epistemology of you know find pathology correct it uh, improve caseload exactly. I think it separates you from the that lived experience of somebody like suffering right this kind of gets into what I read through like Nicole Piamonti's work is like, is it alluring because it makes you a technician versus a clinician? Yeah. And that's what, uh, is it Healy's paper? I think. The her- yeah. Humanetic. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's dive into that. So <laughs> back on track here. Uh, we have listed components of being epistemic, uh, epistemically responsible intentionality, voluntariness, trustworthiness, and praiseworthiness. What do you guys think about these components? And more importantly, how do we cultivate these components? I think we just touched on the intention side of it with the whole control side of things. Um, And I, I think a lot of this comes down to, or back to how we justify doing what we're doing. And a lot of that is based off of our intentions. And I think the root intention for most people really is that to help people. But I also think in today's, especially like social media driven, which granted, this is the lens that I live in now because, you know, we're all involved on the gram and different places where we see a lot of these people who I'm sure have really good intentions, but they're putting stuff up and, you know, you get that little like dopamine thing every time you like, and the praiseworthiness, well, man, I did this content and it got all this these likes. Well, I need to do more content like this. I'm like, well, I don't know, man. I, I've been in, like, when I was getting ready, before I decided to open a practice, I went into several practices to see about, like, becoming an associate with them. And it, it was ran like any other business. I walked into the break room and there were numbers that we needed to hit. There were marketing schemes written out. I mean, is the intentionality at that point to help people? Is that a, maybe a subheader? But first and foremost is profitability. Uh, I mean, I still think, I don't know, and this is funny because it just means I have a sunnier disposition than you, which I rarely get called sunny disposition. Um, I, I, I <laughs> think a lot of people do get into it from the business side of things. And, you know, you see 
the groups pop up that are like, well, here's how to increase your practice 10 K and granted, like you got to make ends meet, yeah. but like, I also think some of it gets yeah. into the same short game, long game conversation because you can get out and do exactly what everybody else is doing and ride the wave of whatever the current three letter acronym of treatment is, or like you can really take responsibility and realize like you don't know shit. And I'm in it for the long game and realize it's probably going to take you five to seven years before you're like, a moderately competent clinician and by then like if you probably looked at it in terms of profitability like the graphs would intersect at some point to where like you can't keep up with the three-letter acronym cup game forever that was a double entendre i didn't realize um and then you know you look at the long term that slope's going to be a little bit more graded but like over time you're going to end up overtaking the person that is going after the short gains I don't know, man. I see a lot of people that do have that 20-year little badge on their shoulder saying they've been practicing for 20 years. And I take a look at what they're putting on social media, and it's still the same nonsense as a lot of other people, just looking for the next latest and greatest thing that they can sell to patients. Uh, maybe I am a little farther down that, uh, I don't know, cynical rabbit hole at this point. Michael well, Sinek. Give it five years. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. in, in my experience, Mike. Um, but right. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I, I certainly will agree that there are nefarious individuals out there. However, I highly doubt that, or I don't, I guess I don't want to believe is a better way of saying it, that we've gotten to a point where there is a large cohort that are just looking to generate money. And I, I think you've, you've lost the battle the second it becomes like that, like, because if if you're looking at dollar signs instead of like human stories like well time is money so what are you gonna like how are you trying to maximize the money out of your time instead of like sometimes this is gonna take some time for us to get through this and get you back to where you want to be this can get sticky though right like you can you can think you are being epistemic uh epistemically responsible and you can think that you're doing the right things for patients because they're giving positive feedback and you're impacting them directly. And you go into it with the premise of helping someone. But then also you have a business that you need to make money in order to make ends meet because that's the, you know, the capitalist society we live in for a lot of us. And because of that, you kind of feed forward into that mechanism of like, well, they're reporting positive feedback to me. They're getting better and I'm profiting. I don't see a problem here. Like, why should I give a shit about your evidence? Why should I care? about what your research is saying if people are right in front of my face getting better these people keep leaving facebook reviews after they made it across my transatlantic voyage i mean it's I yeah and like but you look at a lot of instances where we've had like some type of like crisis or tragedy and like it's rarely like one gross mistake it's like a series of concessions that eventually led to something going wrong and mm -hmm. I, I think it's easy for a lot of us, and I'm sure I've rationalized out some things in my life that were not good ideas by like taking one step down a bad road and the second step and that third step. And then you're like, well, I'm here now. Might as well do what I'm going to do. And uh, I like I always go back to like the Catherine Schultz uh, being wrong book, which was one of the best things yeah. I've read in the past decade. And one of the points she tries to make is like, it's actually impossible to be wrong because the second that you realize you're wrong, you have changed your belief. Mm 
So like you can't have been wrong, but as far as actually like being wrong from your perspective, you can't do it because the second you are wrong, you have now changed your belief and you are now right. (laughs) And like, I always think that's kind of an interesting concept to try and wrap your mind around. Because if we look back on, like, I would love to be able to go back and see some of my notes from like my first two or three years of practice, just to see some of the dumb shit that I'm sure I wrote down. And Mm -hmm. like looking back on it now, I'm like, you know, it's, it was a learning curve and I had to accept the fact that I was going to say some dumb shit in order to like get to where I am now, which I'm sure 10 years from now, I'll still look at and be like, man, I was an idiot 11 years into practice. But I think it's the willingness to do that, right? Like you're willing to self-examine and you're comfortable with being like, yeah, I was wrong about that. Like I wasn't uh, making decisions off of everything that I thought I was or whatever it may be. Like you're accepting the fact that you're going to be wrong. I don't know that many people do that. Do you, do you guys Man, think? I don't know that I would say I'm comfortable with it. It sucks every time. Like, it's hard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you yeah, accept yeah, it, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's not like I'm like, man, I screwed that up. I feel good that I'm not doing that anymore. It's like, man, I screwed that up. That like, that sucks. And like, Sometimes it's cool, though, because you're like, oh, we have evidence now that moves me in a different direction. I mean, I think you could look at it from that standpoint as well. Like, oh, at least we actually have knowledge about this topic yeah, now. But it's still hard not to say, like, I did dumb shit for three years. Like, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I try to temper myself all the time. I, I think my like my personal bias is that um, I, I, I'm attracted to, like, more recent more recency kind of stuff and whatever is the most latest thing I've read. I'm like, Oh my God, I need to like really dive down this and figure it out and like hold on to it. And then when I emerge on the other side, I'm like, shit, like I'm making the same mistake I did a year ago with this topic and a year ago with that topic. And I think I'm getting, I think I'm getting better at like tempering myself and accepting new stuff, but making sure I'm not just like being the, um, yeah, it's, it's hard. And like, (laughs) <laughs> you get that uncomfortable feeling like oh my god I'm, I'm making the same mistake again like look I'm, I'm i'm like back at it do you guys think uh because this is kind of off topic but i'm curious what could come out that would drastically alter and i consider both of you well-read individuals with a good grasp on things that we do in clinical practice regularly is there something that could come out this week that would drastically alter your clinical approach you yeah, certainly I mean, yeah. if there was some big, huge meta-analysis that came out that said that some whatever has some evidence to it, I'm like, yeah, but the, the closest thing I can really think of that would be like an example is the stuff for shockwave and tendinopathy. And like, I feel like yeah. a lot of the passive modality stuff, the evidence is like sketchy at best. But like the, the shockwave stuff has some like decent evidence to it and if there were a meta-analysis that came out and said like hey this works for this i'd be like yeah cool we should probably look at doing this and but i think like this kind of gets it like a dichotomy versus a spectrum type thing because like if you look at things as like yes no the whole time then the second you go yes you're all into it but like Mm -hmm. instead of me giving at this point shockwave like a 47% seal of approval, it would probably knock me up to like 65. Like I'm still not like 
gung-ho riding the shockwave train. Yeah, I I think I would always, I'm like, I'm, I'm open to anything, but like, I, I not, maybe not anything, but like, I let myself be surprised because I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know what's going to come out. So my example of like Brownie's paper, I think was surprising to me. I'm like, whoa, here's a study that I didn't even know, like you could design a study like this, first of all. And second of all, there's some interesting findings that I'm now more interested in seeing if I can learn more about it and apply it to my practice. So there was like, there was almost like a shift in the, in the way I was viewing um, research and what I need to kind of learn and how that informs my practice. So that was surprising to me. You know, if I, if you asked me on January 1st, what I was going to try to look forward and read and see if I could change my practice, I don't think that would have been on my list. Yeah. No. So how often do you guys think someone should be assessing their belief system in clinical practice? I mean, at some point we actually have to get in there and actually do our jobs. Um, so how often should someone be looking at stuff? I'm not quite sure what you're Definitely. asking because, yeah, the easy answer to that is, like, every interaction you should be questioning what's going on. I'm talking about for changing clinical practice. Like if you go into it and you think that whatever X is the latest, greatest thing that you should be doing in clinical practice and you start doing it and you think that there's sufficient evidence to support it. When do you revisit that, that, uh, that idea? How do we, I mean, my personal bias is I'm regularly looking for actively for other things, uh, new research, but is there a rule of thumb we can give someone how do we go about giving pragmatic application to this? I think some of it depends. I think this comes back to no. Go ahead. It depends on really where your interest is. I mean, I'll have two or three days where like I'll be reading more youth resistance training stuff and not like on tendinopathy or wherever I'm currently at. And then like some paper will come up and I'm like, man, I should probably go give this a look. But I also think it's like kind of surrounding yourself with people who will challenge a belief. Is like, you know, when I presented at CSN this year, like I wanted every person that I could like preemptively give the talk to, to like drill holes in that talk. Because like the more holes I get drilled in prior to actually getting up and giving it, the better I am at like structuring it to the masses. And like that whole like constant fear of failure thing, sure. like, you know, you want to talk about somebody who is nervous going into something like it. I feel like I had read just about everything I could find on the subject and still got up there in front of however many people with a certain lack of certainty, just because like the evidence doesn't support any one stance super strong. So you're like, well, this is where we are. Uh, Amato, were you going to say something? I was going to say exactly that. Like the, like if, if you're putting all the onus as like an independent job on yourself, like if you're just like, you know, playing your best, like Emmanuel Kant and sitting in your room all day, like you're going to heavily be like biased. So it, I think it's more about like the environment and the culture that you like are placing yeah. yourself in. And then it almost happens like automatically because every day I walk into work, it's either I'm having some kind of discussion with like Zach or Steph and we're just, I don't know what we're going to talk about that day, but it's, it's, it's usually something. And, um, or you guys are texting me. It, it's like, it's like a barrage in, in a good way. And that 
I'm on my toes and I'm actively seeking information so I can bring more pieces to the table and have conversations and see where that goes. So in terms of how much I update, it's like every moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would say like it's surrounding your, it's, it's tribalism still for us. Like we're surrounding people, like-minded individuals who are actively trying to instill the mindset of seeking responsibility from a standpoint of, you know, assessing and appraising evidence on a regular basis. Yeah. That's the hard part. You can't get away from it, right? Like you always yeah. exist in some kind of like network. Um, you can't, I don't, I don't think you can be like this lone ranger as much as we like, like to think of ourselves sometimes. So what do you guys think voluntariness means? I, I think it's that like, it's, it's literally like being, uh, like being, taking like a meta approach to it. Like you're aware of what you need to do to like push forward. Yeah that you're not just kind of blindly doing it, that you're waiting for the next in-service to tell you how to update it. You know, because if, if you think about, like, what the general clinical model looks like, I, I guarantee, like, the average clinician isn't, like, cultivated to, like, actively do this stuff. Yeah, I would agree. I think voluntariness is, like, you actively seeking out information, and maybe that is by just surrounding people around you while you're trying to seek it out, but it's not just passively receiving knowledge and then adapting that as your own and then applying it to clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Trustworthiness. Well, I think we're all as good as our reputation and, you know, this kind of gets back to what we were discussing a moment ago about playing the long game on this. And, and there aren't really like flashy things and we shouldn't necessarily be like cats with lasers on the new latest and greatest treatment. It's the long-term trustworthiness of, of the information we're going to give out. And I, I think you can't develop that as a new grad because it takes a few years of like really figuring things out and like starting to lay the foundation for your beliefs. Okay. The last one for traits of being uh, epistemically responsible is an interesting one, praiseworthiness. Yeah, that... I don't think I'm, I'm not too sure on this one to be, to be honest. I think it comes down to, um, you know, whether or not you're like, how, how, I guess how you're, how you're deciding whether or not you're doing a good job on this. And that, that, that could be a hard, that could be a hard task. So I think that's why you can't do it alone. That's why you need like other people surrounding you. But I think, you know, there's the example you hear in athletics a lot of times that like a great athlete will never tell you they're great. It's just, you know, the more somebody's telling you how good they are at their sport, less likely they are to actually, like, be that way. And I I think it kind of holds here to where if you have some, you should be seeking to, like, constantly work on finding the best answers to where people start seeking you out to help them find the best answers. Okay. I agree. I think we've already talked about pretty at length about how to cultivate the attributes of being epistemically responsible. Um, The next thing we have on here is what forms are episteme as clinicians, which I think we've also talked about as it relates to the school system, Mm -hmm. as it relates to how we look at clinical practice, as well as the people that we surround ourselves with. Is there anything that you guys would add to that list? I guess it's just being it's like I think it's important to be aware of like 
how many different avenues you gain your knowledge from. Like, you know, it's not just what you read. I, I think there's so many, like, it's, it, again, it's like, well, what, what environment are you embedding yourself in? And I think you have to be aware of like how many different pieces you pick up from that. It's funny. I was reading one of the papers. Essentially infinite. Yeah. I was reading one of the papers and it was talking about dyads and uh, there's a professor at Clemson who we would go to happy hour with a lot. And he is a marketing professor, but he would always talk about this like conversation of our interconnectedness and like the dyads that make us who we are. And it was all like, I've probably heard the conversation 30 times at this point in my life, but every time it's like, it's like hearing your favorite song on the radio to where it's like <laughs> the interconnectedness of us all really like help shape who we are. And even back to like, you know, what school we went to, well, we formed a network there. And like, if you hung around me, you're going to hear me reference a lot of my like friends from Florida. And like, I think being aware that none of us are really on an Island as far as where our, like our bolus of knowledge comes from. It's always a, like some of the people we surround ourselves with, the people who challenge our ideas and the people who end up like making us better humans. Mm -hmm. And even like you said earlier, like the actual population. You yeah. Treat, right. Like that's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think people often hear us all talk and it just sounds as though we're just advocating for just read research, just read research. But I think if I'm adequately hearing us today, we're saying, well, yes, that is a component of it, but it's much more of just read research. It's also interacting with other human beings, especially whether it's clinical practice or with your colleagues, challenging each other on a regular basis. It's much more than just, I'm going to go read research. We also need to have an understanding of it and pragmatically apply it and then question each other, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or else like evidence-based practice would have already solved all our problems, you know? Right. If it were that easy, we would have rolled this out like we did in the nineties and yeah. we wouldn't have this discussion today. Yeah, we'd be done. <laughs> so I think that leads us to our last topic of discussion. How can we pragmatically apply an epistemology of practice that is both justified and places a human in front of us as a priority? Um, both the references for this are Saraga and Healy. Yeah, I think Who wants we, to go first. I think we talked about this. Yeah, pretty well at this point. Like you know, like if clinical practice is treating the person in front of you, then how are you justifying your treatments and interaction with them? Because if that's your starting point, then like things need to kind of flow from there, and I, that, that's where I think some of the flawed episteme gets really highlighted in, in terms of where a lot of our arguments and um, in, ineffectiveness comes out of. And I think these papers do a really good job of getting down to like, you're viewing the person as the answer instead of them like harboring a vessel of disease that you're trying to like uncover that's like hidden beneath their skin. And I think that's where we get into like, a lot of trouble because of the way we're taught in school and this goes back to like gross anatomy class like you're looking at a body in front of you like peeled open and you're looking at oh look that's you know tendonitis right there 
I think that's like we just gotta peer <laughs> beneath the surface and figure out all of the problems. Modern. Yeah, and that's where imaging comes into play, and that's like it's it's a, it's a view as the body as an object rather than the person as a subject, and that's kind of what it comes down to. I, I think the best representation I've ever heard of this is when Christopher Hitchens had cancer. He wrote a book uh, at the end of his life that, that it's called Mortality that I highly recommend for anyone. But he talks about like the whole narrative that we hear with cancer. It's like, well, you just have to fight the cancer and you just, you know, this is going to be a, a war. And he's like, well, hold, hold on a second. Like I have cancer. If I'm fighting cancer, I'm fighting myself. So how can I fight myself out of this? Are, are we like framing this entire problem wrong? Like I am a human. I happen to have some cancer, but do I need to fight myself? And like, mm -hmm. when you start like thinking about the narrative like that, like, yeah, dude had a point. Like it, it's, I think a lot of times we think we just need to intervene on this, like one subset of tissue in the human body and completely forget that there's like an entire human there. <laughs> I think it's just easy to do that, you know, to talk about like, well, this is a spinal degenerative disc disease issue rather than Bob's having an issue that he's dealing with that I need to help him with, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's difficult to make that switch. I, I think for a lot of us, especially how we're classically trained in school, um, it's tough to do. I mean, hopefully as we educate more and more, we're able to do that and kind of reframe the approach that you're helping a human being in front of you. And it's easy. Like you'll hear patients regularly say just anecdotally, like, Oh, this is a low back issue. This is a disc issue. This is a whatever. And it's like, well, I mean, you are your low back. So to separate that out, it actually isn't even feasible or possible, you know, and, and how do we have that discussion with patients to get them to realize that this is a person centered issue, not a, a you know, anatomical issue. Yeah. And this will lead like awesomely, I think, into the episode three where we, we're making the same mistakes where it's like when we learn more about pain and how the role of the nervous system and then we become you know, super brain centric. And it's like, well, pain's in the brain. So let's figure out how to fix the brain. And it's like, no, you're, right. you're still, you're still not just your it's brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is of the person and you are helping a yeah. person. I mean, it, and I think that really gets at um, what we're trying to do in clinical practice today, at least for us three is trying to approach the person and do the best we can to meet them where they're at and help them move forward. I think that this is probably a good stopping point, unless anyone else has anything they want to add. I think this has been good. Yeah. So next episode, if you want to read ahead, we're having Peter Stilwell on. Uh, Peter wrote a really good article on, um, oh, I'm going to totally blank on the title. It's like inactive approach to pre uh, pain moving beyond the biopsychosocial model. Did I get that mm -hmm. somewhat right? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's going to be on here and we're actually going to have him. He's a PhD candidate. He, we're going to have his um, primary uh, that helped him write that article as well. Who's uh, sponsoring his PhD candidacy. She's going to be on as well. Catherine, I want to say Hammerin. Is that correct? You're on your own on this one, Mike. You guys are totally mm -hmm. leaving me hanging yeah, here. Hanging. Thanks. <laughs> much, much appreciated. I will tell you correctly. Catherine Harmon, excuse yeah. me, Catherine Harmon. So they will both be on. Um, if you've not read this paper, I would say it's probably at least for me personally, the 2019 paper to read, uh, being someone who likes to read about pain. 
I liked it a lot. Uh, it's a bit lengthy, but I think you'd gain a lot from it. So we're going to have them both on. It'll be a bit of a conundrum because there'll be five of us on here, but I think it'll be a good discussion about what is pain and how do we talk about that past the biopsychosocial model. Should be fun. All right. Well, thank you guys for having this discussion with me today. I uh, hope everyone takes something away from it, and hopefully we didn't sound a lot like just more high ground assholes. Uh, hopefully you get something useful out of this discussion. Be sure to go to um, iTunes or wherever you download this podcast from. If you liked it, leave us a five-star review, share it, comment on it. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us get the word out there for everyone. And hopefully this information is useful for them. Uh, if you need anything, as always, you can find us at barbellmedicine.com. Just click on the forum. You can go to the sub forum, pain and rehab. Leave us a comment or question about those topics. And all three of us would do our best to help you out as much as we can. If you're struggling with an issue that needs a, needs a little more individual attention, you can sign up for a consultation with us for pain and rehab, and we will do a one-on-one -on -one consultation with you and programming for you if you need it. Um, until next time, uh, just do the best you can. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thank you. There you go.